Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this special episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fiala Narduzzi and today you'll be listening to a recording of a live event which took place in November at Hay Festival's Winter Weekend. A conversation between the novelists Sarah Hall and Sarah Moss both of whose most recent novels confront life in the midst of a pandemic, chaired by the TLS's fiction editor, Toby Lishtig. Toby, alphabetically minded, began by introducing his first guest, Sarah Hall. Sarah Hall has written five novels and three collections of short stories, including The Beautiful Indifference, which won the Edge Hill and Portico Prizes. Twice nominated for The Booker, she's also a two-times winner of the BBC National Short Story Award, for Mrs Fox and The Grotesques in 2020. Her new novel is Burnt Coat, which is this novel here. Sarah Moss's previous books include a memoir of living in Iceland, Names for the Sea, and the novels Summer Water, Cold Earth, Night Waking, which won the Fiction Uncovered Prize, Bodies of Light, Signs for Lost Children, The Tidal Zone and Ghostful. She has, among other things, been shortlisted three times for the Welcome Book Prize, and her new book is called The Felt. And actually, my copy is a proof copy, so it's not quite the same. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to do a little bit of introduction about the books themselves. You know, these are two novels with very much with overlapping themes, but different styles and approaches. Um, Sarah Hall's novel Burnt Coat is set in a, a slant-wise Britain, in which a pandemic, but not the pandemic, which we've all been confronting over the last two years, has ravaged the country. Um, It's far more lethal even um, than COVID-19. National deaths are in the millions and few who contract the virus survive to tell the tale. And whereas we all experience at least some measure of solidarity um, in this country, socially at least, perhaps not politically, um, during the most intense phase of the virus, um, in Sarah Hall's Britain, uh, there's some degree of social collapse going on. The civil infrastructure is... In tatters, there's looting, there's violence, and uh, a concomitant rise in authoritarianism. Uh, Sarah Hall's novel stars Edith, who's a sculptor. Um, she specialises in, in the immense and monumental, these huge land art sculptures. Um, and, and we sort of meet her uh, later on in her life as she reflects on, on the pandemic, which has sort of subsided but not entirely gone away, as well as her life, her art and her love affair with a man called Hallett, who she met just before it all began. So that's Burnt Coat. Uh, Sarah Moss's novel, The Fell, um, takes us sort of more squarely into the world that we 
all experienced um, in in uh, some measures last year and to some extent are still experiencing now. Um, it's a sort of it's a lockdown novel. Um, it takes place over the course of one long evening and night, and features Matt. Uh, he's a teenage boy and his single mother Kate. Uh, who are in the middle of a fortnight of quarantine. Desperate to escape the confines of her home, Kate sneaks out for a walk on the nearby moors and fails to come home. So the novel looks at the impact of this event on on Kate and on Matt and on their elderly neighbour, who's called Alice, who's shielding at home, and on other members of the local community, including a local volunteer called Rob, who goes off um, in search of Kate as a mountain rescue party. So it's sort of about the kind of constellation around this one event. So, before we kind of dive deep into the novels, I'm going to ask you both a little bit about inspiration and process, if I may. So I'll start with you, Sarah Hall, on my right. I mean, so, as we've been saying, your book is, you know, very much about a pandemic, but it's, it doesn't sort of necessarily take centre stage. And one of the things I was interested in is to what extent these ideas, these characters, the sculptor, her relationship with her relationship with her difficult mother, which we can come to later, were they there before, or was this purely a, a novel sparked by everything that's happened in the last two years? I certainly think it was a response to what was happening um, when I began writing it during the first lockdown in March 2020, and the first draft of the novel was drawing on the kind of current events and the fear and uncertainty and speculation about what might happen. Um, and the early draft was really written quickly by hand in a book and it was sort of pulling in the events of the day and, and what people were talking about. But um, I've sort of likened every novel that I've written to both a deep mining, you know, so some of the themes in there I've been working with for decades now um, and the preoccupations existed before Burnt Coat came along and the pandemic came along um, and also, the, you know, the surface mining of what was going on uh, in society and in the medical community at the time of writing. Um, and those two things sort of overlapped in some ways, um, came together. The first draft was very rough. It was full of scaffolding um, in terms of my thinking about what was going on at the time and the sort of fictional story was there but sort of sitting in the wings in some way so that the editing process was about folding it all together uh, to make a more kind of comprehensive whole. How long did that first draft take you? The first draft was really quick I think I started it in March and handed it well handed in a third draft um, at the end of June I think wow. so wow. It, yeah but the first draft was very short it was 15,000 words long and then second and third expanded upon it and it was a very intense process and how were you if I may ask how are you able to write at home I know you've got a small child at home and we were all locked down and I imagine that was tricky it times. was tricky it was five and six a.m for really? a few hours and really? then homeschool and going to bed very early sort right. of nine o'clock eight thirty um and up again but I was in a very agitated state in mm. some ways not an uncomfortably agitated state, but a kind of creatively agitated state. And were you previously working on something that you sort of dropped because you suddenly had to do this? Or I was. Um, I wasn't making too much headway. I've been trying to tackle this particular novel for a number of years, maybe decades again. Um, and it's sort of slow going. Uh, and this thing arrived, just kind of, you know, cleared the decks um, and took over. Right. 
And did, did, you, did you have a similar experience? Does that chime with you? Yes, I, I find we have to talk about the novels that have been going for decades later. <laughs> yeah, Maybe yeah. Let, you know, let's go for a drink because <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Um, yes, I was also ostensibly working on what, what I've begun to call the unwritable novel, which I've been trying to write for more than 10 years and I just can't. I have a new idea now. I believe I'm going to write it, but, you know, I always think that. Um, and... Well, I keep saying that it was there's a collection, annual collection in Ireland called The Winter Papers, which comes out in November, and I was given that to review. And my initial myth of origin for this book was that in the Winter Papers, people were starting to write about the pandemic, and that made me think, okay, we can actually find narratives and stories for this. There are, it, we can bring art to this thing. It's not just an emergency. We're capable of thinking about it. But when I went back and looked at the winter papers, actually, there's almost nothing about the pandemic in them. So there was clearly something else kind of giving me permission to start start working with it. It was later for me. It was the second lockdown. It was November. Um, I mean, the book is set about two weeks before I started writing it. Right. So yeah, it's it's, it's set in pretty much exactly November. a year ago, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. 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 And then, so what you say, so you started writing it a, a, a year ago. And then, yes. And how how long did it? How long was the first draft for you then? I think I'd written a draft by a, a very rough first draft probably by February and I think I sent it to my agent in April so that's it I mean it's pretty yes I, mean, I don't know what your normal writing place is that strikes me it's pretty pretty quick I normally write a, a really messy awful first draft very fast and then spend a long time reworking it and were you similarly writing at five in the morning and well my kids are teenagers so it's a bit easier to work while they're awake but I have certainly done the five in the morning with small children thing Mm. Amazing. Um, so let's we're going to sort of dive into the the books, I think, and we'll start. Let's start with Burnt Coat. So we've got this protagonist, Edith. Uh, she's a sculptor, as I said, and her her art really is sort of front and centre of this book, really, isn't it? And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that art, the techniques she uses, and and what it sort of says about the rest of the book and how integral it is to the novel as a whole. Yeah, so um, the character of Edith is a, a land artist, a large-scale sculptor, and she um, uses lots of different uh, medium, but eventually finds that burnt wood is a very comfortable uh, material for her to work with. So she studies um, a technique called shaosugiban, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, apologies, in Japan on one of these amazing, you know, artistic residences that exist now and again, Um and uh, finds it finds it very meaningful way to work um so the technique is basically burning the surface of wood at not too deep a burn um and then brushing it and what you end up with is a kind of beautiful grained black panel but you see a lot of buildings in japan built this way um the brushing of the kind of uh charring takes away most of the top coat and you get these gorgeous you know patterns in the grain which are themselves a bit like stories um so she uses this technique to build very large feminist uh quite provocative sculptures um sort of think think like angel of the north but if it was a little bit more well it was very controversial when it went up yeah, but yeah. um and in fact doesn't doesn't one character even say oh, it's going to be controversial now and then it's going to be a, you exactly know, a, 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 a the kind of years, yeah the, the controversy which becomes iconic yep mm. And so, so, they, so the, the wood is burnt. I think there's a line that says something about you know you sort of you burn the wood, you harm the wood to protect it. Which exactly. You end up with a yeah stronger, more resilient, waterproof. Makes us think of vaccines, I suppose. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and all through the book, there's this notion of of heat and fire. Um, 
the virus, the Nova virus, as I conceived of it in the book, um, brings with it an incredibly high fever, which is fatal. And if you do survive it, the virus retreats into the cells and remains dormant until it comes back again particular points um and at that point it is fatal so this idea of of passing through fire and and becoming more resilient if you survive it is central to the art and to the virus in some ways and you know metaphorically speaking to the notion of how a person might become resilient through their life's experiences the japanese uh, master in the book who's teaching edith the technique describes the wood as experiencing fire um have you experience this technique yourself I mean is it, is no it, I'd right. love to give it a go <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say I mean, obviously you know you've researched it deeply yeah. in order to write it but have you, is it mostly through reading though? I haven't tried it reading around it um talking to people who use the technique and wood experts and um it's one of those stretches that you have to make as a writer yeah 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 beautifully done um can you tell us a bit about Edith then so we've talked about her art but what sort of a person is she and what kind of a voice are you giving your audience her. Yeah, so the novel is really uh, her looking back over her life um, and bringing together the, the more meaningful experiences that have made her the artist and the person she is. Uh, she starts out with a fairly difficult childhood in some ways. Her mother suffers a brain aneurysm and is left having to recreate her identity and, and learn everything again, including she's a writer, including how to write, um, how to walk, everything. Um and the relationship with the husband breaks down, so Edith has no father. But her and her mother develop this um, interesting system of survival and operating in a very rustic location in the north of England. Very interested to think about the single parent uh, in both our novels. It's sort of, I don't know, I was really excited when I started reading Sarah's book because single parents and their depictions are not infrequent, but they're not that frequent, and it's mm. it's... It's quite an important um, area to delve down into. Mm. Yeah, we, let, we, we, you know, we can we can add lib. Let's talk about that a bit now. Then, so your your character Kate, who goes for a walk, she's a, she's a single parent as well. Was there? I don't you know. I don't want to say anything as crude as was there something about the pandemic that makes one to write want to write about single parents? But was there something about the kind of the the intensity of that lockdown experience when you only have a couple of characters at home, perhaps that allows you to really delve into those relationships? I or? think so. And I was also thinking about about teenagers growing up I mean my you know I I think about this a lot because my kids are teenagers but also I've been a university lecturer for the last 20 years so I work a lot with young adults and one of the joys of that is seeing them go from being kind of apprentice adults to more confident adults and I was thinking about that momentum and that stage in development and I suppose about how it's affected by lockdown and that our stereotype is always that the, you know, the teenagers are the snowflake generation, but they're often very resilient and resourceful. And I think in a lot of ways they coped much better with lockdown and the shift to online life than those of us whose lives are, are not so much online in what we still think of as normal times. So I was interested in Matt's capacity to take responsibility and to kind of move towards that adult role in relation to his mother. I so mean, Matt's, Matt's the teenage son. Matt's the teenage son, he's 16, and Kate is the 40-something mother um, who is not coping with lockdown, and Matt is, or not coping with isolation, and Matt is. So I was just interested in how those roles begin to shift yeah. under pressure. Yeah, that's really interesting. So she's the one that goes off for the walk, isn't she? And mm. she's the one who's sort of, at the beginning... I, I'm maybe cracking up is too too crude a phrase, but she's certainly everything around her is she's irritated by everything. She can't 
believe how much he eats you know yes <laughs> yes you know she's not used to just being at home with him 24 7 the washing the and so she's the one who has to kind of go out and and break the rules and and yeah she's not coping he's not coping and he's he's left in this very difficult situation whereby you know he's obviously he doesn't know where his mother where his mother's gone in normal circumstances he'd have the support of other people but he very specifically cannot be with anyone else and he sort of has to fend for himself doesn't he yes yeah and he games a lot I mean I was quite interested in that other world that a lot of teenagers occupy where you, you go into the bedroom and they're actually shooting up the Moscow underground or something um, and how far that's a resource for him and how far it's it's just a distraction. Yeah, but but I guess a kind of very famous with a sort of another world that's online. And and then you've got this elderly neighbour, Alice, who's mm. next door, who's also, well, I suppose maybe you can tell us, but she's sort of half coping and half not coping, I would say. Yes, she became my favourite voice. She wasn't where I started. I started with Kate. Um, Alice is in her early 70s. She's very recently widowed. She's been having cancer treatment, so she's supposed to be... She- well, she is shielding entirely. And she feels... She's very lonely, but she's guilty about feeling lonely because she's very aware of her own privilege, that she's safe, she has lots of money, she has a nice house. Her neighbours are very kind to her and bring her food and look after her. She feels as if she's got nothing to complain about, but actually she's newly bereaved and she's extremely lonely. So I think And vulnerable as well. And vulnerable. So I, I think it's that anxiety a lot of us had where, you know, whenever you said to anyone, oh, hi, how are you? They said, oh, well, I'm, you know, I, I can't complain. It could be much worse. You know, I'm not in intensive care and I'm not dead and I haven't lost anybody. And you think... Okay, if that's our baseline, yeah, good. You know, I'm I'm really glad, but you're still allowed to have feelings and to be a human being. But Alice is kind of trapped in that. I can't, you know, mustn't complain because I'm very privileged. You think, well, yeah, but you know, there's more to it than that. And she has a slightly antagonistic relationship with her daughter, doesn't she? Who she sort of she she appears on their Zoom dinners. And the daughter is happier complaining, I would say. The daughter's and, also having a hard time. Yeah. I didn't want her to be a monster. And I no, think no, no, no. She, she doesn't come across yeah. a monster at all, but and she has a different discourse, I'd say. She does, but also she can't see Alice. So I think quite a lot of us who had older parents found ourselves kind of hectoring from a distance because we couldn't actually meet. Um, Susie's very worried that Alice is going to go out or that she's going to do something she shouldn't do. And again, it's a kind of role reversal where she's trying to boss her mum around and her mum is quite resistant. And her mum says things to her which certainly struck home for me as well. I say, we, we are getting out of it, aren't you? And, you know, making sure you have some time off. And she says, no, yeah. I'm not. I've got children to look after and, and I have schooling and work to do and a demanding boss. And I thought it was done very, very well. So you mentioned guilt. There's, I guess there's quite a lot of guilt in both your books. I mean, Sarah Hall, there's, there's definitely some some guilt channeling through it I would say is that of mine or your, <laughs> no, I don't mean your personal guilt <laughs> but your, your yes your character's guilt and survivor's guilt survivor's guilt yeah that yeah she she is grappling with that but also she, Edith has been charged with creating a national monument to the dead which is a terrible but you know very prestigious thing to have to grapple with and and it it was that thinking around the notion of what good is art in this situation and and how does it begin to um represent the experience of hundreds of thousands or millions of people um and she does have guilt and she has it on a personal level um in relation to having lost a lover during the pandemic and whether or not she could have been a better carer um lots of different things and I suppose thinking back to her mother and whether she was understanding enough of the condition but I certainly don't think she's sort of trapped by guilt Mm. um it's really a book that extends beyond any 
self-victimization that that could be happening um, through to another level where the experiences they may be terrible but but what's to be done after that? What's to be made and, and, and what's to be taken forward? And that's very much the voice of Edith, I think. And does she have doubt in her, in her ability as an artist to commemorate this, you know, totally shocking tragedy? I think for her, it's more a question of how she brings her personal experience into the national experience. Um, and one of the ideas of the book is, is perspective. You know, the first line is those who tell stories survive. Um, which is a strange way round to think about that notion. Um, but everybody has a different perception of, of, of the world and how and that, that informs how they live their life. Um, and Edith is questioning that notion as well throughout the novel. Um, and she doesn't want the monument to go up while she's still living. It's mm. going to be a posthumous thing. It's, been, it's taken decades for her to finish it. And she's sort of handing over the keys to her installer so that it can go up. She knows she's on the way out. Um, which at, is the, at the beginning, in the opening pages, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's been not a, a spoiler. Re- <laughs> that's not a spoiler. There's been a recurrence yeah, of the virus, and she's yeah. sort of beginning to... It lies dormant. To your that's virus, right, yeah. Know, the virus, and she's seeing symptoms. So, in a way, this book, it's, it's addressed to you, isn't it? It's addressed to Hallett. Yeah, there's a second-person narration in it, um, sections of the novel anyway, and that begins as an address to her lover, who, because she is going through the process of dying, he has come back... Um, because that's her closest association to death in some ways. But the you in the novel switches to become more of an address to death in the end. And one of the things that um, Edith has been grappling with since childhood, because although her mother survived one aneurysm, she had another weakening in the brain cell, and both of them lived with the knowledge that at any point she might die. Um, Blood vessel, sorry. Um, So at one point, Edith describes this notion of having lived with death as like a ghost pavement, in her life that set the rest of the kind of life around it and the way ghost pavements work is it puts the perspective into a painting so Mm. you can get distance and and a telescopic view of something Um, and so really the address is to to death but not a personified death you know although the history of art has personified death frequently in many different ways this is a novel which doesn't do that death is a void it's more of a humanist novel in some ways but and Edith is coming to terms with that. And so in some ways, the relationship that she has had with Hallett, and she addresses him as you, becomes an entirely different address to another relationship that's always existed for her. And there's a sort of a, there's a kind of dance in it between, between narrative itself and death, isn't there? So you talk about the opening, um, uh, those who tell stories survive. You've also got Scheherazade, who's mentioned, you know, on page two or whatever. To what to what extent are you kind of playing with those themes of sort of narrative as antidote to end and stuff? Yeah, and that's an interesting tale, isn't it? Because the telling of stories keeps you alive. So Edith does interrogate this notion of, well, do those who tell stories survive? And if so, how? How does that work? And one idea is, you know, she sort of, in the end, doesn't come up with, a, with an answer to the question and, and begins to think, well... I was creating these huge sculptures which were all about mortality. Have I just been pleasing death with my work? And is that why I've stayed alive in the same way as telling stories to see another dawn worked for um, the unfortunate wife, who was fortunate in the end? Um, Or what is it? What is it about the telling of stories that's important? You know, it's about us making meaning, isn't it? And and wanting to kind of leave an imprint, leave a legacy, leave history behind us. And her mother's a storyteller too, isn't she? Her mother's a storyteller. And she loses the ability to tell stories. She ends up writing one short novel 
very strange kind of outsider art novel after, after her. her illness um, and then gives it up and starts teaching workshops. But the outsider novel is the one that actually helps to, well, helps to make her even more famous. Also. It helps to make her more famous in some ways, but then there is an excavate. She's rediscovered later. I'm quite interested in the sort of rediscovery process of, of female artists and writers that's going on now. Faber have just reissued Mrs Caliban by Rachel Ingalls. So the kind of going back and retrieving great writers and artists women from the past because they were perhaps overlooked or not not crowned enough is very interesting and it certainly happens to to Edith's mother Naomi. There's a great line in your book where someone says that she Naomi was a gothic writer and then gothic was just a phrase that was sort of flung at female writers. Right rather than existentialist writers. Rather than existentialist I thought was totally brilliant completely spot on. (laughs) Um, Let's talk a little bit about the kind of the the Britons which you have mm. both imagined. I'll, I'll go over to Sarah Moss now. Um, what, okay, I'm going to phrase this slightly differently. What sort of a country do you think Britain, and I know you've moved to Ireland as well, so let's say the British Isles and Ireland, um, sort of was over the last 18 months, and to what, to what extent or, or what aspects of that did you want to focus on in your book? What, what, what aspects of the kind of countries and cultures in which we've been living mm. were you most interested in looking at politically in your book? I think, well, I, two caveats. First of all, I'd want to distinguish very carefully what was happening within the, the different countries that mm. make up Britain mm. and Ireland there, because I think the Irish experience was actually very different from the Scottish, the English, the yes. Welsh. Um, and and I we should say, sorry, your book's set in the Peak District. It's set in it? the Peak District, yeah. yes, it is. Um, so I think, you know, the, the fissures and the lines of fragmentation have opened up a lot over the last few years in, you know, Brexit, COVID. There, there are all of these, these weird kind of binaries where people line up on either side. But my impression is that that's very much an English move, actually, rather than Scottish or Welsh, and certainly Irish. Mm. I mean, I may be wrong about that. I've spent my time in England and Ireland, but I'm Scottish by birth and have a lot of Scottish friends. And my, my sense is that the division, I mean, of course, there's always dissent, but the dissent is more nuanced outside England. I don't think this is a political novel. I think it's it's interested in rescue and charity and mercy. It's interested in what happens when you screw up. Mm. And I found that during particularly the first lockdown, I, div- I don't normally watch television, we don't have a television, but I developed a compulsion for a BBC documentary series called Ambulance which I'd previously thought of as being voyeuristic. I mean, you know, it kind of occasionally drifted through iPlayer on my laptop, and I thought, oh, you know, this is very voyeuristic stuff. I'm not going to watch that. And I became quite obsessed by it. And I kept trying to work out why, because if you've seen it, you'll know that it's actually very rarely all that dramatic. I mean, they tend to go for the cases where it ends up with somebody, you know, who's fallen over being helped up or something. The drama is actually not very acute. And I realised after a bit... It was because our our shared belief, and it's true, basically, is that when things have really gone wrong, even if it's your own fault, especially if it's your own fault, you can dial that magic number and somebody will come and get you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And that's such a child's fantasy of being parented, of being cared for. And there's a thing people sometimes say, oh, well, she brought it on herself. It was her own fault. And I was thinking, how is that meant to help? You know, all the most of the worst things that have happened to me have been my own fault. That's no consolation. It doesn't make it any better in any way. Actually, it makes it worse. And the point about dialing 999 is that it doesn't matter if it's your own fault. It doesn't matter if you took your overdose accidentally or on purpose. It doesn't matter if you should never have been up that ladder in the first place. It doesn't matter if you just had a brain aneurysm for no reason that was nobody's fault and that nobody did anything to deserve. You know, nobody's keeping moral tabs on you at that point. They will simply come and they will pick you up and they will do their best. And I grew up climbing mountains um, with rather rigorous mountain climbing parents who were very clear about the circumstances under which you could and couldn't call mountain rescue. And this was before mobile phones. And it was clear that if you called mountain rescue, it was because you buggered up. You know, you'd done something really stupid. Uh, and you should avoid it at all costs. I've never had to do it, but I've come close sometimes. And usually because it's my own fault, usually because I made some poor decision earlier in the day whose consequences are now unrolling in front of me. And I think Mountain Rescue, even more than the other services, seem because nobody has to go up the mountains. It's a choice that you make. And most of the reasons you would end up calling for rescue are because you made a poor choice earlier on. And mostly when you make those poor choices, you get away with it, but every so often you don't. So that's really what I was thinking about, not so much about politics and division. I mean, there's, there's nothing here about being pro-lockdown or anti-lockdown mm, or pro-vax yeah. or anti-vax or any of that stuff. It's really about how do we judge each other and how do we rescue each other when we need it. But there's all, there is a kind of, so that, that, that aspect of morality, there's a kind of, there's a sort of a COVID stencil put over mm. it because it sort of throws everyone's ideas of what the right thing to do yes. is so one of so when Kate goes up the mountain she has this anxiety that she's she's broken the law well, and has. actually so that's what, what do I do if something happens to me I, you know I, actually it's not just a normal rescue situation and you know you've got Alice who's shielding and she thinks well so the right thing for me to do is stay at home but that's instinctively wrong because I want to go and comfort 
my young neighbour. Yes. And so everyone's got a diff, you know, an, an unusual moral yes. quandary. But that was what lockdown did, wasn't yeah. it? It turned every single thing into a moral decision. So do you dob in your neighbour? You know, is that the, is that the good? Well, thing there's to do? that, but also, you know, if you've run out of tin tomatoes, can mm. you go to the corner shop and buy some, or are you going to kill a granny by mm. going out when you shouldn't? <laughs> you know, and these. These very small decisions. The one that really shocked me was I've been running for years and years and years. I've, you know, I've always run. And it's never been a moral issue. I mean, if anything, I feel it's generally <laughs> regarded as a benign and virtuous thing to do. And then suddenly, for a few weeks, everybody hated and was terrified of runners. And running was evil and selfish and was going to kill a granny. And then it went away again. And it was so odd feeling that... You know, I was now the public enemy because I was running, whereas six weeks ago it was fine, and actually six weeks later it was also it was fine, fine again. There, there was a period where the hel- helicopters going over the Lake District. Yes, Lake District. The Peak are District. You, are you exercising or are you having fun? Mm. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and in France, you were allowed to ride a bike if it was for transport, but not not if it was for fun. And it just seemed that you know fun had been criminalised. And a lot of that conversation about what was essential and what was not essential was actually about what was pleasurable. If it was fun, it wasn't essential. And that just it it just seemed as if this kind of puritanism had been unleashed and legitimised in ways that were perhaps necessary, but also very destructive. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the other considerations, like financial considerations, so your character Kate, who's on a low income, and she, she's, you know, shielding, at, no, um, in quarantine at home, but they haven't got much food. Because, yes. You know, they've run out of food, and you, it's, it costs an extra fiver to get it delivered, so she's going without, so her son can eat, because suddenly certain things are more expensive than they used to be, because you can't just nip out to the shops. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all about that, that kind of different lens, isn't it? Um, what about politics in burnt coke so there's just a the line i'm going to read out if oh, i may okay um it's you know it's something that, that 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 also happened in pretty much everywhere during during covid19 but you write in the poorer boroughs along lines of ethnicity and poverty the virus spread wildly exposing the country's bias its rotten structures which i thought was a very apposite way of putting what did happen in covid19 and is still happening how political is your novel and and what kind of a Britain are you looking at in it? I think it probably is political in some ways although it's not again proposing anything as as a right or wrong way of looking at things but I suppose there was the benefit of, of slightly changing places and making this a dislocated novel so while it's set in the north um of England and there is a Lake District and there's a possible Carlisle that's not really Carlisle as the small city where Edith lives there's enough of a twist of the dial that things are different again from the way they are now and it gives a writer I think additional room to play um, so the virus is a bit worse the social collapse is a bit worse the ambulances just aren't coming well actually they're just not coming mm. I mean that's mm. now um, and the army's on the streets and they're patrolling. Um, there are these terrible personal decisions that have to be made, the fights in bread queues, you know, waiting for your one loaf of bread. So things are moved into a realm where it's a little bit more extreme and that's quite a good way to to look at the stirred pot. And I, I do think that's true of the, of the COVID pandemic, that it did expose all the weaknesses and problems in the country, all the inequalities, everything that needed more examination and proper consideration politically and and wasn't being suddenly came to the fore um, and was being discussed in relation to the pandemic but you know it had always existed that way and I certainly think that happens in Burnt Coat but in a more extreme 
way. Edith and Hallett, while they're locked down, are worried about going out. You know, they do they need papers? Do they need an attestation? Do they, you know, do they need their passports? You know, Hallett is an immigrant. He's been settled in the country for 10 years. But, you know, does he all of a sudden need his proof of identity? Um, and one thing that I found really unsettling about the English uh, pandemic the reality of it was there was so much weight put on the individual of course we need to make sensible decisions each of us but the level of I think poor government over the last couple of years has been extreme and it's meant that individuals have internalized things in a way that they shouldn't have had to and you were almost the fall guy when it went wrong and it was deliberate I think you know it's a kind of it's all on you, you you're like children you do do right and everything will be okay do wrong and we'll punish you that's also sort of proposed in the book a little bit and I internalized it quite frankly mm. you know my dad passed away last month of covid and I was covid positive but Lancaster hospital let me in to see him providing I took my own transportation um and they fitted me up at the door of the hospital and I could go in and be with him for the last few days. And I was so anxious about that. I'm leaving my house and I'm COVID positive. I'm going to a hospital in my own car to be with my dad who's in this terrible position. And I was feeling guilty about it. I was, and uh, Dominic fucking Cummings gets to kind of drive (laughs) the length of the country. Why am I feeling guilty about this in this one moment when I absolutely have to travel, Mm, you know? And that's the level of internalization that I think has happened. And it's almost like being in an abusive relationship in some ways. You take it in. And you, you, you kind of haven't been treated properly in this situation, I think. That sounds rather extreme, but I'm no, feeling think, rather extreme about it. I think I think the way I think you're absolutely right, and you know you've you've obviously given a very um, you know ex- extreme and, and an important example of it. But it's, it is really the way we were all made to internalise that. I'm sure we've all had versions of that where, yeah. and you've got you know you had a choice between two terrible things, and obviously you went to see your father, which was what absolutely anybody in your position would do. But still, somehow that was supposed to be yeah in some level wrong. And but I think I think that kind of atomization courses through your novel I and mean, I think it really you really got that sense of I suppose that's part of you've got this more extreme Britain and a more extreme virus where things have actually broken down but it's sort of I guess the sense is that it's it's only a different order of extremity rather than a different order of yeah thing. that's right and I think I was trying to kind of look around the corners a bit I mean we don't know when this pandemic will end it doesn't show many signs of letting up but you know, the question of how will we be after was being asked, wasn't it, mm. very early on? Mm. What will this do to us? Will it sort of clarify us? Will it? Will we live differently afterwards? And we're still asking those questions. So I, I was trying to kind of look around the corners a bit and, you know, see any adjustments that might be made in the aftermath of something as terrible as this and as terrible as the pandemic in the novel. Um, so Edith's, the, she describes it as the second part of her life and it's lived far more quietly and a bit more reclusively and she makes certain personal political decisions about how she wants to live and that was of interest to me the sort of you know telescoping forward to see how things might be if 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 anything or or do we just go back to the same you know the same systems there was talk about the education system being reformed wasn't there while we had the chance to do it i remember that and uh (laughs) hasn't been (laughs) yeah i suppose that that makes me think as well about the kind of so so both of these novels were written to an extent in real time, whatever that means, you know, as things were progressing. I, I want to maybe talk a little bit about the challenges of that in a second, but also, in a way, they are um, first response novels to the pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. these are early pandemic novels. There is going to be a whole wave of literature that responds to this. 
over the years. Do you do you have a sense of how that kind of body of work is going to evolve? And if you don't, that's fine because you don't have to. But I just wondered, you know, if you sort of having both written responses to this, do you whether you kind of have some sort of sense of what future literary responses might might look like? I don't. I don't think this is just or even really primarily a response to COVID. Mm. I think that the the things I'm thinking about, about personal freedom and responsibility to the community and how do we share scant resources and how can we be kind to each other in crisis are going to be there in a much bigger form when we deal with the real crisis, which is climate change, which is actually far bigger and more dangerous and will go on for much longer than COVID. And will present us with very many of the same questions. You know, who's allowed to fly? What's an essential reason to fly? Are you allowed to have fun? I mean, I keep going back to saying you're allowed to have fun, but it seems quite important to me because if the answer is no, and sometimes it is no, then I have a real, you know, what is it all for? I, I have a problem with that. And I think one of the reasons climate change is so hard to think about is because it seems so rigorously anti-fun. And actually most of the things that are bad for the environment are more fun than most of the things that aren't. Um, but you're not really supposed to say that. You're supposed to make it sound very fun to you know, have less stuff. But it's clear that how, if we're not going to go for the worst possible case scenario with climate change, people who have a lot are going to have to choose to have less. Mm. And that's not an easy sell. Mm. And we've all lived with capitalism for long enough that it's very hard to make it sound fun to have less. So, I mean, I think Sarah's absolutely right about the way covid really kind of turned up the lights on the problems that were already there i'm not sure it's actually presented us with any brand new problems Mm. and i'm not sure that any of the problems it's presented us with will go away if i mean i don't i don't see how it ever will go away anyway you know we we might get better at dealing with it but it's not going to disappear so i think i think the sense that this is some complete novelty that kind of blazed across our skies like a comet and will disappear like a comet is mm. is just not not true and I was very struck so while you were talking about death and mortality one of the things I found surprising at the beginning is that there's been enough very critical illness in my family in the last few years that it was not news to me that sometimes people die in untimely and distressing ways and that we all live with death and you know, your, your, your thing about the aneurysm that might go at any time you know some of us live with that kind of reality day after day after day and actually once you start talking to people you discover it's an awful lot of people who live with that reality and who know that truth so I think again this idea that you know it's it's just unbearably shocking to discover that we're not all born entitled to whatever it is 83.6 years of bountiful health it really didn't how many people actually managed to believe that how many people managed to believe that after middle age it i don't i don't think it's actually that much of a novelty and i just being told it, it on an hourly basis that we couldn't deal with yes being reminded of it but it was always true of course yeah yeah there's a there's a line that your character kate says um where she says of all the things we're learning we of the end times because she thinks a lot about climate change is that humanity's ending appears to be slow, lacking in cliffhangers, or indeed any satisfactory narrative shape. And I thought that was a very mm. interesting line mm. um, in, in respect to this. You know, it's not, it's, it's messy, and it's exactly as you said in the line I quoted, it's going to be unequal, and, the, you know, some, some people are 
we're not all going to be fine, but some people are going to do better than others. Yeah. And this is just part of the evolving, slow... Yeah, and there'll be the people it. who are already doing better than others. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, is, is there anything else you want, you want to say? No, I just um, I sometimes feel like COVID has kind of shaken the tree a bit, hasn't mm. it? Because mm. it's sort of... It's a, it's a, a, a practice catastrophe <laughs> in yes, some ways, isn't exactly. it, for the kind of catastrophes to come, which you're right, will be much bigger and more varied and... and much more terrible and it's sort of <laughs> I don't know can we say we've done okay or we're doing okay so far I mean there are some great success stories aren't there I mean the development of vaccines and the rapidity of that and um, people working together and um, other other kind of strange notions of going out and clapping for the NHS I mean on my street people were going out at eight o'clock and shouting pay rise really loudly <laughs> um, Norwich at that point Kendall now same deal but <laughs> Um, so I don't know. I think in some ways it's um, COVID has stirred the pot in terms of what are we capable of in a, in a catastrophe? Because it's sort of been regarded as a catastrophe, hasn't it? Albeit a, not a full, full-fledged one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose at the, so at the end of the fell, you know, we're not going to give anything away. But, you know, there is there are people coming together. There's Mountain Rescue. Mm. These are volunteers. Yeah. Um, there's perhaps less light at the end of the tunnel um, in Burke. Again, not giving anything away, but you know, but there's there's art. There's what will survive of us. Um, you know, there's love. Yeah. So. Yeah, and the kind of the, there is a line in Burke actually where where Edith says we want to be rechilded, and and it's yes. interesting that notion of 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 the rescue services and the the capacity that we might or might not have to help ourselves and to look after ourselves and to kind of can we can we do it? There's a a sort of a mountain rescue scene right at the beginning of the novel too just to get Edith's mother over to a, a better bigger surgical hospital when that, she yes. needs it and and I've sort of said I felt a bit like a first responder going going straight in to try and work on something yes. in lockdown of course I'm not a first responder wonderful writers like Sarah Perry trained to be vaccinators and that seems far more you know um, another brilliant Sarah <laughs> <laughs> um, that seemed far more useful in some ways but um I suppose that is a question, isn't it? What what could books do in this situation? I don't know if if you had that at all in mind while writing, or well, just got on with the task not, of writing. No, I didn't, and I'm always very resistant to the idea of writing as activism. Mm. I think writing and activism are very separate. I mean, I, I might do both, but I do them in completely different ways. And I think the my concern about thinking about writing as activism is that it ends up with writing being instrumental, mm. and I'm, I'm I, I don't want that. I think. I think what writing can do for some people if they want it and you know I have been told off for writing about the pandemic and I have pointed out that there are some other books out there if anybody doesn't (laughs) feel like reading about pandemics Um, it's that point about narrative if if you're someone who thinks with art if you're somebody who needs narrative structures to think critically and intelligently rather than I suppose I think the opposite of making stories is that kind of emergency panic you know kind of adrenaline urgent response and maybe as I speak I'm thinking about first responders and about the way first responders come in with a narrative I mean my first aid training kind of is a story Mm. it's a framework about what you do is the scene secure Mm. What risks are you incurring? Are you going to generate more risks by going in than by not going in? Airway, breathing, circulation. You know, it, it's a story, actually. First aid training is a story. So what we're doing is bringing a narrative framework to an emergency. 
Mm-hmm. And for some people, that's helpful. And for some people, it's not. And if it's not, then, you know, don't read it. And if it is, here they are. <laughs> we were talking earlier about mixed responses, weren't we? And about how some people do seem to be very cross about the idea that you might want to write about the thing that's going on around us. I mean, I find this extraordinary, but it seems to be a line, doesn't it? But, yeah. you know, we need time. Something's happened and we need at least 20 years to go and think about it. Put away to mature like a Christmas pudding. Yes. Mm. (laughs) It's a curious curious literary response, isn't it? Um, We've got some time for questions. Um, Before we do, would would you both be up for reading just a little bit from both? We've only got about 15 minutes left and we've got at least seven or eight questions, but if we want to do two or three minutes each, does Mm -hmm. that sound Mm -hmm. doable? Okay, Fab, who wants to start? Sure. Okay, so this is Alice. Um, she's been baking cookies and she's been dancing and singing, but I am not going to dance and sing, so you'll have to take that bit as read. She's going to send them special delivery tomorrow morning, the cookies. Ask Matt next door to take them to the post office and give him a few for his trouble. He can always use feeding up. Kate keeps him on rabbit food. Not they haven't been very kind, both of them, all the way through this doing her shopping, and recently they've been walking or on bikes, even with the milk and tins coming up the hill. The car insurance ran out, Kate said when she asked, and it's not as if we're going anywhere anyway. Only she couldn't ask them for the things she really wants, salt and vinegar hula hoops and the expensive bitter mints, not with Kate working at shoots and leaves and growing her own lentils or whatever. Probably hasn't eaten a hula hoop in decades. It's infantilising, that's what it is, having other people bring you food. And since Mark died, she got used to privacy, buying what she fancies, which actually used to be mostly pots of soup and remarkably expensive bread from the nice deli by the station, and eating it when she likes and none of anyone else's business. No need for ancestral voices in her head scolding about making her own soup, which obviously she could, did for years, and now doesn't, so there. I think I'm going to stop there because I want there to be time for questions. That was lovely. (laughs) Thank you. Oh no, I might need to trim. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so this is a little section um, Hallett and Edith have been locked down for a while he's ventured out, they've both ventured out and got into trouble, he more so and uh, this is the result at the table you lifted your arm and reached for the salt and I saw the rash around the point of bone wet, yellowish, with a red halo there were small bubbles under the skin with pale liquid inside I caught your arm and held it. Some blisters had burst and their pus was already crusting. What? You tried to see, twisting your arm round, then went to the bathroom mirror and held up the elbow. Under your breath you said a word I didn't recognise, then closed your eyes, your head fell back. I felt the first sick rising of alarm. Did you burn it or anything? Silence. Hallett? No. We'd both been counting the days, nine since you'd come back hurt. You faced the ceiling, blind, like the head of a plant, waiting for light's instruction. I tried to find something to say. Then your attention snapped back. You opened your eyes and looked at me. Do you have anything? No, I don't think so. We have to check. We stood apart in the bathroom and undressed. There was no thrill. Even when you'd been hurt and I'd taken down your shorts, I'd noted for a fraction of a second the bones of your hips, the brownish penis in its nest of dark hair. My skin was clear, 
You made me turn several times, looking everywhere, in my armpits, the backs of my knees. The examination was horribly thorough. I'm fine. Please, stop. No, turn again. Lift up your feet. Perhaps you were delaying. Hallett, let me look at you properly, please. You stood still as a pillar and I walked round, squatted. There were more marks on your lower back in the ridge between buttocks. They looked like infant sores, fever blisters, nothing I'd seen in adulthood, even when travelling. Do you think it's Nova? Your voice was small, urgent. Yes. I tried to hug you, but you held my shoulders and stood me away. No, come on, you can't do that. You walked out of the bathroom and into the bedroom and began stripping the sheets. We have to wash everything. I've touched everything. Hallett, stop, please. You pulled the covers off the pillows, half frantic, half furious, full of self-reproach. I'll clean here and then I'll go back to my flat. I'm a fucking idiot. You bundled the sheets, held them between your fists, every muscle in your torso stark. Violence or flight. I didn't know you in this state. I didn't know which might happen. Your face was concentrated, stony. The bruises on your temple faded to pale grey. No small dispute can prepare for the first real conflict. It's size and sear. In another version, you took up your clothes, dressed and left, slamming the door. I did not see you again. It hangs there, the possibility in which we are cut apart and freed and lost from each other. In that version, emptiness reaches the edge of the frame. Nothing populates it. Everything is the colour of clay. My whole life is lived differently or is not lived. But you are incapable of abandonment, of refusing kindness. Stop. I have it already, I said. If you do, I do. You shook your head and looked away. No, you don't. Yes. I walked forward and took the sheets and you let go hesitantly as if putting a small child into the sea. I dropped them and placed my hand on your chest. You kept shaking your head, denying everything, my touch, your acquittal, the disease. You can't leave. Please don't leave. Then we were in each other's arms. That's a very nice note to end on, actually. So we've got Burnt Coat, The Fell, and as kind of a late addition to this, The Promise as well. Yeah. Three fantastic <laughs> books. Which if you haven't read them, I would advise everyone to go out and get a copy right away. Sarah Hall, Sarah Moss, thank you so much. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.